A Crosshair Saab 340B is taking off out of Zurich when something causes it to spiral into the ground. What caused this flight to lose control so soon after takeoff? Welcome back to the Hard Landings Podcast, everybody. I'm Nick. I'm Miranda. And I'm Christy. Hey. Welcome back. It's only been a couple days since we recorded, so we don't (laughs) got much new news for you. Nope. If you haven't heard it yet, it is coming. We are doing the February listener episodes. We got a lot toward the end of the month, and then we were like, when are we going to record this? (laughs) And we were like, we don't know. It will show up eventually. If you want ducks, you can still get ducks. We will be sending them out shortly. If you submitted one after March 1st, you will not get yours yet. So right. keep that in mind. If it's not in there by a certain point, we wait till next month to send them to you because we have to put like $100 of postage in our account for postage. Yeah. That's that. not any indication how much we love you guys. I don't know what is. <laughs> also, if you are getting Patreon merch, you should be getting that as well. Yes. Lissa says hi. Yes. She hung out with us yesterday. Yes. Yes. Hello, Lissa, because she also listens. Lucky stories for March stories, listener stories. Yep. Just tell us a story. We're cool with that. Or just tell us a story. Oh, we mentioned this, I think, on a post episode, but if you guys ever see anything on, like, the Printify store that you want us to carry, let us know. It can be arranged. Arranged. All right. What are we covering today, Nick? Today, we are covering Crosshair 498. Yes, we're revisiting Crosshair. <laughs> Again, for the second week in a row. Yep. We're actually going back in time. Oh, yeah. This is before the last one. Same thing goes. Thank you, Julian, for recommending this episode. Thanks. Yeah. And if you haven't figured it out, we're still in Switzerland. Yes. Nothing has changed. Nope. This no. is still Zurich. Yes. Shocked. Shocked, I say. This accident happened on January 10th of 2000. Oh, so you went back one, one year. year. <laughs> yes. Okay. You, you are correct. This is a Saab 340. Is Saab a Russian airplane? No, Swedish. Oh, they're Swedish. So yeah, this is a Saab 340 with the tail number Hotel Bravo Dash Alpha Kilo Kilo. This is a flight from Zurich to Dresden, Germany. The captain for today's flight was Captain Pavel Grusen. He was 41 years old. He had 8,452 hours total of which 1,870 hours were on the SOP 340. So, decently experienced. The first officer was Rastislav Kolsar. Got it. He was 35 years old. So they they are not Swiss. No. (laughs) And as a matter of fact, none of the three on board were. Hmm. Three? There was the cabin crew, too. Oh. None of the three crew on board were Swiss. He had 2,332 hours total, of which 1,162 hours were on the Saab. The captain was to be the pilot flying for this flight, and the first officer was to be the pilot monitoring. The flight crew had already flown several flights that day, but on a different airplane. They had switched to this airplane for the remainder of their day, starting with this accident flight, unfortunately. At 5.39 p.m. and 14 seconds, the crew received the clearance delivery for their flight from the air traffic controller for the flight to Dresden. Just seven passengers boarded the plane to go along with the three crew. At 5.45 p.m., the flight was cleared to start engines. At 5.49 p.m. and 22 seconds, the first officer informed the air traffic controller that they were ready to taxi. They began performing the taxi checklist at that time. 
They were given clearance to taxi to the hold short of runway 28 at Zurich by the air traffic controller. This is a familiar runway. Nah, really? (laughs) They began their taxi and promptly completed the taxi checklist. At 5.52 p.m. and 36 seconds, the air traffic controller instructed the flight to line up on the runway, and they did so. 5.54 p.m., the air traffic controller cleared the flight for takeoff on runway 28, and they began their takeoff roll. They lifted off of the runway normally and retracted the landing gear at 5.54 p.m. and 31 seconds. The captain then requested the flight director be activated. The flight director, basically, whatever you put in on the computer in terms of your flight plan and how it's navigating, it displays on your instruments for your attitude indicator and for your altitude. It displays, basically, the targets. So... It's not really a function of the autopilot per se, but it It's a helps navigational you. aid. It's a navigational aid, exactly. It's, it's the targets you would follow. They also armed the autopilot nav mode. Armed, though. This does not mean that they activated it. This means that it is ready to go when they activate the autopilot. The captain maintained manual control of the aircraft at the time, and he maintained a 15-degree airplane nose-up pitch attitude at a speed of 136 knots. So pretty stable climb. The clouds began just 500 feet above the ground, or 1,900 feet above sea level. So the flight quickly entered the Instrument Meteorological Conditions, or IMC. 5.55 p.m. and 7 seconds, the tower air traffic controller instructed the flight to change frequencies to the departure air traffic controller. At 5.55 p.m. and 15 seconds, the departure controller cleared the flight to climb to 11,000 feet. As the flight was passing the KLO waypoint on their departure... The air traffic controller instructed the flight to turn left to the ZUE, or Zurich East, VOR, and the first officer acknowledged this as they began this left turn. This was a deviation from what their original departure plan was. Zurich East, they're heading west right now. Right. Zurich East is on the east side of Zurich. Yes. So so when you're heading west, you can take either route to get to Zurich East. You can turn right or you can turn left. But the air traffic controller told them, to turn left. Yes. So. Their original plan was to take right turns to get to the Zurich East point. Right. So now they're in a left turn. A few moments after commencing the left turn, the airplane's wings leveled off. Then they began banking to the right, entering a right turn while still in a climb. The captain then instructed the first officer to set the climb power. The first officer began the process to set the climb power, and it is a process. A few moments later, the airplane peaked at 4,720 feet and 158 knots. At 5.56 p.m. and 10 seconds, the airplane began banking further to the right to a maximum of 80 degrees to the right. So nearly straight up and down. Yeah, nearly vertical. Yeah, to the right. Simultaneously, the nose began dropping till it reached a rather dramatic 25 degrees nose down pitch attitude. The speed quickly increased to 207 knots as they began losing altitude quickly. 5.56 p.m. and 15 seconds, the air traffic controller, having noticed that the airplane was turning right on the radar, inquired to the flight, Crosshair, 498, confirm you're turning left. The first officer responded, Moment, please, stand by. So, strange. The air traffic controller responded, Okay, continue right to Zurich East. 5.56 p.m. and 20 seconds, the airplane went into a steep spiral dive as the bank angle had increased to 137 degrees to the right. So now, yes, they are inverted. The engines were still at a high power setting at that time. As they passed 250 knots, the overspeed warning began sounding in the cockpit. 
Within seconds, the aircraft's bank angle had reduced to 76 degrees, still pretty dramatic to the right, but the pitch attitude was now 65 degrees, airplane nose down. And the speed had increased to 285 knots, which is way above their overspeed mark. At that time, witnesses saw the airplane diving out of the clouds in a right turn. Just seconds later, hardly even, at 5.56 p.m. and 27.2 seconds, the aircraft crashed into an open field near Au, A-U, Switzerland. The airplane disintegrated on impact, with much of the debris ending up three meters deep into the soft soil in the area, and the rest spreading out in the surrounding area. A fire occurred on impact that was still burning sometime later. Unfortunately, all ten on board perished in the crash, because it was a very high-speed crash. Ah, uh, really? Yes. This was, however, the first accident for Crossair in its 25-year history up to that point. And that had two two years in a row. Yes. That's not great. Not good. Also, you said they were turning left. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I'm guessing they're doing a, they could go right or they could go left. Yes. It's basically 180 degrees behind them. So, sort so, of. So why, why they turn right? Uh-huh. They were going left. They were supposed uh-huh. to keep going left. Yeah. So why'd they go right? Yep. Yep. Are you just going to say yeah? <laughs> <laughs> now we'll get into it. This investigation was performed by the AAIB of Switzerland, yep. who arrived on scene the next morning. At the beginning of the report, they also took the time to list and thank all participants in the investigation, which I'm also going to do so we all understand the huge scope of this investigation. Buckle up. Aeroflot, Russian Airlines. Okay. And Miranda's making a face. It <laughs> <laughs> is an odd one to start. The Airport Police of Zurich, the BEA of France, the Cantonal Police of Zurich, the CEFA Aviation France, Chipworks Limited, Civil Aviation Academy of St. Petersburg, Russia, Crossair AG, EMPA Federal Materials Testing and Research Institute, Federal Office for Civil Aviation, Federal Office of Communications, Firefighting Department of the Airport of Zurich Kloten and the Municipality of Nazanwil Niederhasli, Flightscape Incorporated, Flughafen Zurich, Honeywell Aerospace Electronics, Institute for Forensic Medicine of Zurich University, Institute for Geodesy and Photogrammetry of the ETH Zurich, Interstate Aviation Committee of Russia, Institute of Aviation Medicine of the Swiss Air Force, Mateo Schweitz AG, Moldovian Airlines, Moldovian Civil Aviation Authority, the National Transportation Safety Board of the USA, Rockwell Collins Incorporated, RUAG Aerospace, Russian Civil Aviation Authority, Saab Aircraft, Scandinavian Airlines Systems Flight Academy, Scientific Department of the Zurich City Police, Seismology Department of the ETH Zurich, Sexton Avionics, Slovakian Civil Aviation Authority, Special Duty Section of the Federal Department for the Environment, Transport, Energy, and Communications, or DTEC. There's quite the name. <laughs> SR Technics, Swissair, Swisscom, Swiss Control, Technical Department of the News Subgroup of the Federal Department for Defense, Civil Protection, and Sport. Okay. Transportation Safety Board of Canada, the Uljavnovsk Aviation School in Russia, and Universal Avionics. That's 42 different agencies involved. 42. Uh Uh-huh. Why? They must have thought this was important or something. Maybe. Both black boxes were recovered from the wreckage. The black boxes were sent to Canada for analysis. That's why Canada was involved. Yeah. That was honestly the most confusing one of them all to me. They must have been manufactured there. But we'll get back to those later. The fact that most of the wreckage lay within a crater showed that the plane crashed at an extremely steep angle and at a high speed, though they weren't on the standard departure route based on the location of the wreckage. 
Investigators interviewed air traffic control to determine why that might be. Rather than having the flight make right turns to get out of the Zurich area, air traffic control instructed them to turn left to Zurich East, saving them three to four minutes of flight time on the way to Dresden. So it was faster to go left turns. So they were like trying to do them a favor. Uh-huh. Like, hey, I'm going to get you ahead of time. Don't worry about it. And everyone appreciates that. It was then odd when on the radar track, the plane began to turn right. Yeah. Well, yes. Turn left? Nope. We're going to go right. Yep. And the controller asked them to confirm that they were turning left and then just gave them clearance to continue right to Zurich East, not knowing that they were in a deadly right spiral. Well, and there's no way for them to know no. that. They don't know what pitch the airplane's at. While crews were gathering and recording wreckage, investigators interviewed witnesses who said that they saw a fire while the plane was still flying. This is very difficult to prove when the wreckage is in tiny pieces. pieces. And there was a post-impact fire, so it's like, how do, how do you, you tell? know if it's an in-flight or a post Yeah. If the fire started in flight, adjacent pieces of wreckage should fit together to show a soot pattern. Right. That, that makes sense. Yep. That means you have to jigsaw piece the whole thing back together. So the Air Disasters episode interviewed one of the investigators and he's like, it's terrible because you don't know if you're picking up a piece of airplane wreckage or a piece of a body. That's horrifying. Yeah, that's not great. Ew. I don't know if we ever clarified, but the Saab 340 is a small... Smaller twin. airplane. It's a twin turboprop. Well, I, I guess I got that from mm-hmm. it only having 10 people on board, but... Yes. Even so, that's still a lot of pieces to try to put together. Yes. Yes. Investigators began putting the pieces together, but some parts in one area were burned and others weren't, thereby indicating that the only fire happened after impact. So there was no fire. Nope. Based on the weird right turn, investigators wondered if maybe the crew misunderstood the controller. Was their knowledge of the English language sufficient to fly? I hope so. Short answer, yes. Okay. And they were well-experienced pilots, and their colleagues all confirmed that they knew the aviation English well. What else could account for a sudden right turn? Well, pretty obviously, investigators began looking into an engine failure. Oh, I guess I could, yeah. Yep. If the right engine had failed and the left continued working, then the lift would have been increased on the left side and led to a roll to the right. Investigators delved into what was left of both engines and found that both were operating at high speed when they impacted. So there goes that, too. Investigators delved into maintenance records for the aircraft to determine if something was wrong there. And that's when they found that this particular aircraft had a history of flap malfunctions. Well, that's unfortunate. Yeah. To be exact, crews had recorded a total of 21 malfunctions in the 18 months prior to the accident. I feel like that's like a big red flag. Like <laughs> why more than I, once a month. Why, that's not why is that plane flying? Like yeah, It's not good by any means. But I'm guessing they were alive to tell them that there was a problem, mm-hmm. right? So no one was lost control enough to have died. They didn't say that most of them happened at one situation or another. They just gave two situations in which these the flat malfunction occurred. Right. One was on landing, so not applicable here. No. The other was called ballooning, where they would just suddenly come out and then retract. And that is one of the scariest things I can imagine while flying. Ew. That yeah. is not good. Not good. So investigators tried to determine from what remained of the flaps if they may have extended improperly, but the pieces were too small to determine one way or the other, so they had to rely on the flight data recorder. Investigators plugged in the data from the FDR into a simulation and found nothing was wrong with the flaps. And as a matter of fact, they did a flap-up takeoff, which with this airplane is actually pretty normal. It doesn't need it, especially when the airplane's so light. That's true. And the runway's really long. 
So they didn't need it. They didn't need the flaps. The airplane was fully capable of this. So they didn't use them. In sorting through the wreckage, some of it was found outside of the crater. Stuff that got launched away from the main wreckage during impact. Don't like that. Yeeted? Yeah. Don't love that. (laughs) I don't either. One such item was the captain's flight bag. Don't love that. But that's useful. Inside, investigators found something huge, or rather something quite small with potentially huge impact. Sure. They found medication, which from what I understand is not something you usually keep in your flight bag. Unless you're allowed to take it, I guess. Yeah, I mean, it depends, but yeah. It was not in a box. It didn't have any labels, so they had no idea what it was. Upon analyzing the tablets, of which I assume is why there were universities involved. Oh, yeah. Makes sense. Professionals. Yeah, all that jazz. Investigators determined that the substance was phenazepam. It is a Russian medication, which is a powerful sedative similar to Valium. Why does he have that in his flight bag? (laughs) Well, it's used to treat anxiety. No, you're not supposed to fly with it. No! (laughs) If it's close to Valium, I would think not. I guarantee that that medication has the do not operate heavy machinery on the (laughs) packaging. I would certainly hope so. According to the captain's partner, they said wife in the air disasters episode, they said partner in the report, I'm sticking with partner. He was taking the medication because he was so stressed out. You see, his partner and the rest of his family lived in Moldova. And the captain was operating out of Switzerland and sending them money with every paycheck. He was homesick and in a country that spoke mostly German and French, neither of which he spoke. Oh, that's sad. But how much did that medication impact his state of mind? You know, the important question here. To determine that, investigators had to take tissue samples I was going to say, there was only one way for them to figure out if he actually Mm -hmm. was on it while he was flying. They found that he did have medication in his system at the time of the crash, not a huge amount, but they were unable to determine the extent of the effect of the drug on his flight performance. Like he could have taken it the night before to help him sleep or something. And then it's so hard to say. Yeah. Investigators brought in one of the captain's friends to listen to the cockpit voice recorder. That's horrible. What? To see if the captain sounded strange, if his demeanor was at all affected. I hate that. I do too. But the friend wasn't able to say one way or the other, so that's kind of a dead end for now. Investigators listened carefully to the CVR and heard an odd sound. Something you may hear on this podcast occasionally, but probably heard more with our old mixer. They heard electrical interference. Mm. Yep. Particularly the kind that stemmed from cell phone usage on board the aircraft. Because this is the early 2000s and that was a thing. Yep. Our new mixer makes the same buzzing sound when our cell phones are nearby. But the old mixer did it just because it felt like it, so... That is true. So now we broach the subject of just how much cell phone usage affects the aircraft's instruments. I've seen memes about being told by a flight attendant to turn on airplane mode before they themselves go on their phones once they get to their jump seat. Yeah, it's yeah. a running joke. We all get it. Yeah. But can the signal between the phone and the cell towers actually bring down a plane? The Air Disasters episode referenced a Slovenian airliner that had to make an emergency landing because their systems were telling them that they had an in-flight fire, but it turned out to just be cell phone signal interference with the sensor. That seems pretty dramatic. Yeah. I don't know what kind of airplane that was. Yeah. That seems a little out there. That's why I mentioned that it was on the Air Disasters episode. Yeah, They're a little dramatic. That definitely seems a little out there. Yeah. It's not something normal. 
but it's still something investigators looked into. Sure. They ran numerous tests in a Saab 340 to determine if any systems were affected by a cell signal, and they found out that they could detect the interference within the instruments, but it didn't actually affect the instruments because they are well shielded. Furthermore, investigators dug through the occupant's cell phone records only to find that all calls had ceased before takeoff. Oh, well. Investigators continued listening to the CVR and then heard something interesting. When the captain was turning to the right, the first officer began saying left, left, and the captain said, oh, nah, nah. Why? What? The artificial horizon indicators on Western-style airplanes have unnecessary icons disappear when the plane is in a steep bank, and based on the flight data recorder, this happened right when the captain began sounding confused. You might notice that I said Western-style airplanes. Let's delve into that for a second. I mentioned earlier that this captain lived in Moldova, which is formerly part of the Soviet Union, until gaining independence on August 27, 1991, after the collapse. Why is this significant? The captain had received flight training in the Soviet Union and wasn't exposed to Western-style aircraft until joining Crossair, and it turns out that the Soviets did things a little bit differently. Needless to say. Yeah, as we've talked about before with Russian airplanes. Well, we haven't talked about this before. Well, no. Because it hasn't been a problem till now. Horizontal indicators exist to show the relationship between the plane and the horizon. Duh. Yes. But Western-style indicators have the airplane icon in the middle remain steady, and the horizon moves in the background corresponding to the plane's attitude. Right. You've seen it. There's GIFs of it. Sense. Yes. Yep. The Eastern-style indicators were the other way around. The yeah. background remained steadied, but the airplane icon moved. Okay. So what? Big whoop. It shouldn't matter, right? I implore you to go look at the picture on our website. The image shows what a left turn looks like on a Soviet display and what a right turn looks like on a Western display. Oh, no. Miranda, can you describe what you're looking at? There, they look the same. <laughs> the arrows are pointing the same yeah. way for a reason. Oh, no. So... I mean, if you had no idea that Western planes, the plane icon moved, right? You would have no way to know that those are two different things. Like, looking at them, just glancing at them, they look the same. Which is exactly what the captain would have done, is just glance at them. And I would see why... He, he thought they were turning they left? Were turning left, but in quite in fact, he's turning to the right. Yeah. Yeah. I could see how he would get confused. Yeah. So there's definitely potential for confusion, but it is, is it really enough to cause an accident? Well, the whole reason this theory came up was because Russian investigators were working with the Swiss investigators on the captain's background, and they had seen this before. Like on 15 separate accidents. Jeez. Not good. Not good. So yes, the precedent for the confusion was definitely there, and this confusion is what investigators determined to be the cause of the accident. This confusion was exacerbated by the first officer screaming left, left, which could be mistaken as you're turning left instead of go left. Yeah, well, I mean, when you're in a weird situation, though. And English isn't your first language. This is why they yeah. brought up communication, and it does come up again. But there's this is why they brought up communication between the two of them, because the only common language they had between the two of them was English. Was English. And the air traffic controller didn't help by saying, confirm you're turning left. Though investigators don't blame him for that, because that's like a pretty innocuous request. Like, Yes. You wouldn't know that that would be confusing. But also, it does show that the air traffic controller is paying attention, which yes. is a good thing. It Thank is God. a good thing. Unlike the last two Swiss things we've covered. 
All this was further exacerbated by the lingering possibility of a language barrier. Yes, I know I said that the crew knew enough English to fly, but investigators wondered particularly with the captain if he had the language base broad enough to cover non-standard or emergency situations. He was scheduled for additional English language classes, but had not yet started them. Oh, boy. But we here all know that it's never just one thing. No. We discussed before with the Uberlingen crash that Russian aviators are prone to trusting humans over technology. On that same wavelength, Soviet-trained pilots had a cultural tendency to use hand-flying above using the autopilot. And this was the case in the accident, as the autopilot was never engaged at the time, and the captain was hand-flying the aircraft, which adds to the workload in an already critical phase of flight. Well, no wonder he was so stressed out all the time. When you're hand-flying aircraft all the time, I would be stressed out, too. Yep, and over-workloading yourself. Yeah. Now for a question I'm sure Miranda has had by now, hopefully. Or our listeners might have at this point. Why didn't the first officer do anything? Well, I was hoping you would get there before I had to ask the question. Because <laughs> you already said he said left, left, right? Yes. And I was going to bring up, why didn't he just take over the aircraft? But like I said, I knew you were going to get there. I appreciate that. Thank you. So I didn't do the thing I normally do. <laughs> I so expected you to do the thing I <laughs> So the answer is human factors, but not for the reason you might think. No. This aircraft had a new navigation system on board, and investigators wondered if the new system might have drawn the first officer's attention for too long. So they tested that by having another simulation, specifically tracking where the first officer would have been looking for every moment of the flight sequence. It turns out his attention would have been mostly split between the overhead control panel and the navigation panel on the center console between the seats. You know, where he uh, wouldn't have been looking? At his dash. Yeah. Yeah. At where? The, at the indicator. Yep. Yeah. Once he did look at the artificial horizon, according to air disasters, it can take between 4 and 18 seconds to understand your orientation and how to fix it if it isn't right. It was too late for him to do anything really other than yell. I mean, yeah. Which is unfortunate. I have one more point to go over, and it was not mentioned on the Air Disasters episode, as is per usual. Yeah. And that is the Crossair Standard Operating Procedure. Quote, Takeoff was always undertaken by the commander. Therefore, the first officer had little experience of controlling the aircraft in the takeoff phase and of any possible difficulties that might arise in the process. It is conceivable that the first officer of the aircraft involved in the accident was paying little attention to the flight path being flown by the commander and to the attitude, end quote. So he wasn't even used to, like, flying the takeoff. Like, ever? Ever. Like, that was in their standard operating yep. procedure. That's not great. No. No. Because aren't you like some first officers, I realize, make the whole thing about being a first officer their entire career. But the whole point is like to build up to be a captain, right? Mm -hmm. So yeah. then why not give them time flying the aircraft on takeoffs and landings? Like, I don't understand why they wouldn't do that. I'm sure that that had to have changed. Like, that's well, just an industry standard. Now. Yeah, this is yeah. not a normal breakfast. But more of the point is he wouldn't have been comfortable taking control from the captain. Yeah, I guess that makes sense, too. If you're never flying the takeoff, why would you take control from someone who's used to flying the takeoff and you're not? Right. Right. Totally valid. That's all I got. Okay. Which is heavy, but I, I really do recommend you guys go look at this picture and honestly just glance at it at first and tell me that you don't see the confusion. I 100% understand why he was confused because I would have been confused if I was only trained on the left one and never on the right one and then I looked at the right one. Yeah. 
I could understand how he would make that conclusion. Well, and part of learning anything is when you're in a mode of panic or emergency, you always revert to your fundamentals. If your fundamentals aren't what you are currently experiencing, you are going to F it up. Usually, yeah. Pretty much. That's why fundamentals and building blocks and basics are all so, so important. But here, it's also important that you have two pilots that know what they're doing in the cockpit. Yes. And it's not necessarily that he didn't know. No, but I mean... He just didn't have this experience. Right. It's like, if his mind, his basics, made it seem like he was turning left, Mm -hmm. right? Which, again, we've already covered. It looked... I could see how he would make that mistake. And also, to clarify, I mean, I'm sure you kind of figured this out from the story. But yes, one, they were in the clouds... Yes. The whole time this was happening up until the, the last, yeah, yeah, up until like the last second and a half, basically. To it was night. Yeah. Yeah. All they were disoriented. From the time they took off, they flew into the clouds quickly and it was just, yeah, they were completely disoriented. I would have immediately put on my autopilot. I'm not going to try to. Well, and most. Most, most people crews, do. Most, most crews do. Most crews do. So this is, again, the thing with the weird Eastern type of training where they just hand fly everything. Soviet, Russian. And then Crosshair Crosshair specifically said that they had no idea that Soviet artificial horizons were different. And quite frankly, they probably did it. How would they? Yeah, no. How would they? I mean, there are people who know these things. I mean, now we know, but... Yeah, I mean, I, I'm sure I could go up to colleagues these days, even pilots here in the U.S. that probably wouldn't know they that. They would have no idea. Yeah. So, yeah. And they wouldn't be expected to because they don't fly those. No. So. So, so, so there. So there. Let's take a break. Yeah. Sounds and good. we'll come back for, with the same things we always come back with. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If Only in Theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. So during the break, Miranda and I were kind of chit-chatting about the difference in artificial horizons. And both of us agree that initially, coming from a not-pilot perspective, the Soviet one kind of makes sense. Yeah. Arguably more so? Maybe in your own mind. But here's why this makes sense from a pilot perspective, when you're flying on a Western-style attitude indicator. Think about what that's actually showing. It would be showing what's out your window. Exactly. It's showing what's actually outside of your window. It's showing what the attitude, what your reference is to the ground. Because if you're flying in the dark, this is showing you brown is the ground and blue is the sky. This is showing you what your attitude is from As perspective. As compared to the sky. Right. I know This why... is from a pilot's perspective. Meanwhile, the Soviets is from... It's an... from a video game perspective. Well, and it's from an airplane's perspective. This is a third... This is like a third person view. Yeah. From like it like in a video game. That's yes. why it makes more sense to me. Yes, and that might that that's something that maybe our generation would understand better, but also I mean, pretty much any pilot these days, honestly, the Western one just makes more sense. Well, I mean that's what you train with. Like you've already trained right. with it. So right. I, I have never flown a plane. I don't really want sure. to either. And that's fair. <laughs> but the, <laughs> I, but I the, can't. I have a panic disorder. And that's fair. But the Western one 
to me, it makes more sense because it's your first person view. When you're flying in the dark and you have to rely on your instruments, to me, this would be this would make a lot more sense to learn on because this is what your orientation is to the ground, not what the airplane's orientation is to the ground, your orientation to the ground, since that's how our brains work. The Soviet display, meanwhile, is a third person view as if you were looking at the airplane from behind and the horizon was fixed. This is kind of a confusing perspective, to be honest. So I can understand the confusion completely. I do. I get it. To me, the Western one is definitely far superior when you're actually flying an airplane. You're not biased at all. Not at all, clearly. (laughs) So there was one more contributing factor, and it was not mentioned in the Air Disasters episode, which is why it was not in my notes originally. It is in the probable cause because I looked at it. There was one more thing that would have helped the crew realize which way they should have turned and what they were doing. So Nick mentioned earlier that on the navigational aid that you can set a bug to tell you that you're turning oh, left yeah, or right. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. The first officer didn't set it. Oh. Well, more importantly than that, he actually set it in the FMS. But it didn't ever actually show up on the display. For one, because it wasn't activated. Because the captain didn't want to use the autopilot. Right. So... The first officer spent his time actually putting this into the flight management system, the the computer, basically, Mm -hmm. for the airplane, for the navigation. But because the autopilot was never activated... It never showed up on the display. It never showed up on the display, and then the captain still just kind of did what he was originally intending to do, rather than the opposite. You know what I find kind of strange? And I realize they were disoriented, but they started turning left, Mm -hmm. and then he started turning right. Because he heard the left, and I think he thought it was a mistake. But then, because of these attitude indicators, he thought he was in a left turn. Well, I know. And he and, thought he was correcting. And I yeah. know. So he thought he was in a steeper left turn than he was. But, and do we know, does this have a yoke? Does it have a... This was a yoke. A yoke? So, I don't know. I feel like, depending on where you're pushing the yoke, you would know which way to go. But maybe I'm just being... It's, I mean, it's hard to speculate on disorientation. Yeah. Disorientation is a serious issue in aviation, and there are lots of really good training and resources that they put you through when you're going into the airlines these days. But it's... try to train you to not trust your instinct, like your your vertigo, basically. And to trust your instruments. But if you don't, if you can't read your instruments, because If you don't understand the instruments, that's a whole other issue. Anyway, let's do some findings. There were a lot. A lot. (laughs) Just like last week. Yep. And I'm not doing very many at all because 90% of them were all of the things that it wasn't. Oh, okay. You know, like 90% of my analysis. Right. Literally, there were so many pieces to this in the findings that were like, it wasn't this and it wasn't that. Oh, I I skipped some. It wasn't any instruments that were at fault this time. It wasn't icing. Even though they they did not get de-iced. They did not get de-iced. It's January. Yes, it was cold. No, they didn't need it. There's a lot of things to this. It's just a lot of unnecessary things. So anyways, we're only going to read some of these findings. They're all really short, by the way, which is kind of nice. They found that the flight crew had been working together for four days prior to the day of the accident. So it's not like they were unfamiliar with one another, let alone the airplane. First flight together. But they didn't, even on the CVR, like they didn't talk a lot to each other. No, because they they, don't speak the same language. Exactly. They couldn't. Well, and at the same time, I mean, when you've been flying together for four days, how much more can you talk about? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) You know, that's kind of that's kind of the situation. So. This is, there's a few facets to that, but yeah, we'll talk about the whole language barrier thing in a minute. 
They found that the accident flight was the ninth flight which the two pilots had undertaken together. So in those four days, this was the ninth flight they had done together. Not like our crew from last week, which had 15 flights in a day together. Did we determine that all 15 of those flights no. were that crew? No, and actually they weren't. I think it was 10 of them. Okay, still. Still a lot. The captain, I think, had done 14 of the flights on that airplane, and the first officer had done 10 of those flights. So, yeah, it's it was great. They found that all attitude changes during climb and in the subsequent accident phase resulted exclusively from the control commands of the flight crew. So it wasn't a fault of the airplane by any mean. It was the inputs by the captain. They found that a system for bank warning was not present and not prescribed on the aircraft involved in the accident. This is one thing that I'm surprised we haven't brought up up to this point, but this was kind of a big thing in my mind because most airliners these days have a bank angle oral oh, warning. Yeah. That sounds out loud and it's very yeah, loud. It's bank angle. Bank, bank angle. angle. Yeah. It tells you when your bank is far too high. Yeah. So it should have been going off very early in the whole accident sequence, but it wasn't because it wasn't on the airplane and it wasn't didn't need to be. That probably it was, it hasn't was not equipped with, nor was it what we required to be equipped and with. And that probably hasn't changed, to be fair, for a lot of these older type airplanes. It's also a tiny airplane. Yes. As compared these, to like a 737. But a lot of airliners do have this. And these days, pretty much all of them do. It's it's hard to find an airliner these days that doesn't. Right. So that was an interesting one to me. Because I do think that that... I don't know that that necessarily would have prevented this accident. Because he was still doing an action he thought was right. To counter what he thought was going on. So... I don't know how much it would actually would have saved them in this situation, but it still would have been that added piece of like confirmation that, yes, the airplane is not in a good attitude. Right. They found that the commander or the captain had many years of experience on aircraft with instrumentation complying with Russian standards. They found that the CVR recordings indicate a one-sided distribution of labor with heavy strain on the first officer and a limitation of his monitoring function. This was interesting to me. Both of them, I think, had way too much work going on. Yes. Because the captain had chosen to fly the airplane manually into IMC conditions. Which is a terrible idea. Is awful. So, on top of that, he was also delegating many, many things, which we didn't talk about, but he was delegating the whole time all these series of things during this critical phase of flight to the first officer, who's also supposed to be monitoring this whole climb out and the whole departure sequence. And instead, he's having to do all of these different functions that the captain is giving him, including setting the climb power and programming the FMS and many Which other shouldn't things. climb power be the pilot flying's responsibility? Yes and no. Really, it depends on the airline. And they can't ask for help in this regard because that's in this airplane. I'll explain why in this airplane, actually, it makes sense. On this airplane in particular, unlike most airliners, this airplane didn't have an auto throttle. Most of these small airplanes don't. So in other words, it can't adjust power as necessary on its own. Right. So this airplane has to have manual speed control. So I can understand why some airlines would probably make it part of their procedures for the first officer in this case, or the pilot monitoring, to do the power adjustments. Because with the power adjustments, it's going to take a lot more time than it normally would to set power and adjust and find that speed. Then the pilot flying has time to deal with. Right. 
basically if the power is adjusted, then he can fly the airplane per the power that's supposed to be set. So the pilot monitoring is acting as the auto throttle in this situation. Which is not great. No, it's not. And this still happens to this day, actually. It's still not great. Most CRJs by Bombardier are non-auto throttled. So because the captain was choosing to fly manually, he was putting a higher workload on the first officer. So now they both had a really high workload. Hmm. They found that in the commander's or the captain's crew bag, an opened pack of the Russian medication phenazepam was found. Again, they still really couldn't determine the extent. how causal this was. Well, there was no way to know. Yeah, how out of it he was because of this. Yeah, yeah. They, in the Air Disasters episode, you know, the most accurate of sources at this point, mm-hmm. depicted like his vision as going streaky and laggy like you do when you're drunk. I'm like, mm, I, don't I don't know. know. That it, I don't know that it would get to that extent. I mean, if you think about it, if maybe if he took it right before he flew, and if they're assuming that, sure. But he could have, like I said, taken it the night before to help him sleep, and then it would not have been that big of a thing by the time he had to fly the next day. Sure. I do have to admit, I have a stipulation to my analysis of this accident. They had a section of the report regarding what parts per whatever is in the muscle tissue and what potential symptoms might come from that. The stipulation with that is that entire part was left in German. Yep. Oh, well, that's not helpful. No. So I don't know what it said. I you know, German, do us a solid. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, I could plug it into Google Translate, but with medical terms, I'm... Yeah, it can is be it hard. Is it going to pull up what you want it to? Yeah. yeah, it could be hard. It could be really easy to misinterpret. So I don't think they would know for sure. They, I mean, I hate to say this, but there was yeah. so little probably found of him. I hate saying that. I hate it's that It's gross sentence. and disgusting, and I'm sorry I had to bring it up. But I hate that sentence. If this were any other crash, and they found a good portion of him... Again, I'm so sorry. This is so morbid. It probably would have been easier... For them to figure out than having a tiny piece of flesh. And that's possible. But at the same time, really, how much does this matter? He was disoriented. Yeah. Beginning and end of story, he put himself in a situation he shouldn't have been in. So it looks like he had seven to eight nanograms per gram in his system. The section from the IRM report, so it's quoted in the final report of the accident, is on page 81 through 83 of the final report. If you want, if you have medical knowledge and know the medical terminology in the German language and want to translate that for us, go for it. Go for it. There you go. For now, we're going to move on. They found that for several years, the commander or the captain flew an aircraft, the AN-24, Antonov AN-24, a smaller plane too, which was operated according to the multi-crew concept of the former Soviet Union. This is a different concept than the crew resource management today. Right. We'll get to that in just a second. They found that the captain had been employed for about two years on the aircraft type Saab 340B in the operational environment of the FSU and had accumulated over 1,600 hours of flying experience on this type up to the commencement of his activity with Crosshair. So it's not that he wasn't experienced in the Saab per se. Yeah. But he put himself in a situation he shouldn't have been in and he got really disoriented. They found that the flight crew did not consistently apply the principles of crew resource management, CRM. So, needless to say, that was really broken down when the captain decided to manually fly the airplane to a critical point of flight, and the pilot monitoring was having to do way too many things. 
And they did have CRM training, and actually they found that the airline did CRM training, which we talked about last week, but it wasn't checked again, just like last week. Yeah. CRM training wasn't regularly checked. Like, how were they actually This is an CRM? issue we already knew from last week. Right. So. So, there you go. So, again, not great. Right. Along those lines, they found that on recruiting direct entry commanders or captains, Crosshair did not make use of assessment instruments. So this is actually in regards to the captain was hired directly on and he didn't have a whole lot of transition training when he came in by Crosshair. He had some training, but not much by Crosshair. And they didn't really check his experience. They didn't really check his knowledge or his experience or anything. They didn't put him through those tests. They just tried to train him on the systems at hand. And so this was not a really good combination because they didn't know that really most of his experience was on these Soviet gauges. They didn't really understand how that was different for him. Yeah. So that's an issue. Along those lines, they found that documentation on inspections of Crosshair by the FOCA, which is basically the FAA of Switzerland, sections responsible for these is not available. So their oversight of Crosshair, much like last week's episode, not great. Hmm. A year we later, we would have thought they would have done better. A bit better, yeah. But when did this report come out? I mean, yes, but versus also, when did that crosshair flight crash? I mean, yes, but also, how much does that matter? They should have just been doing it anyway. I mean, yes, but <laughs> more on the part of the following flight, did they have the time to implement changes? Right. So this report came out after the second crosshair crash. Yep. Which means the recommendations came out after the second crosshair crash. Yes. Okay. That's it for findings. Ah. Causes. Again. Mostly verbatim. I make some changes. It's fine. The accident is attributable to a collision with the ground. Nah. After the flight crew had lost control of the aircraft for the following reasons. The flight crew reacted inappropriately to the change in departure clearance for Zurich East by air traffic control. The co-pilot made an entry in the FMS without being instructed to do so by the commander, which related to the change to the Zurich East 1 standard instrument departure. In doing so, he omitted to select a turn direction. The commander dispensed with the use of the autopilot under instrument flight conditions and during the work-intensive climb phase of the flight. The commander took the aircraft into a spiral dive to the right because with a probability bordering on certainty, he had lost spatial orientation. The first officer took only inadequate measures to prevent or recover from the spiral dive. The following factors may have contributed to the accident. The commander remained unilaterally firm in perceptions which suggested a left turn direction to him. When interpreting the attitude display instruments under stress, the captain resorted to a reaction pattern or heuristics, which he had learned earlier. The captain's capacity for analysis and critical assessment of the situation were possibly limited as a result of the effects of medication. After the change to standard instrument departure Zurich East 1 Yankee, the crew set inappropriate priorities for their tasks and their concentration remained one-sided. The commander was not systematically acquainted by Crosshair with the specific features of Western systems and cockpit procedures. There you go. Yeah, that sums it up pretty well. So now for some recommendations, which there were also quite a few of. And the way that they structure the recommendation section, it makes sense. But at the same time, it's a little complicated because they run into what the problem was, what the finding was, what the analysis of that was, and then what the recommendation is. Jeez. You literally do that all for every single recommendation. So I had to go through and pick the recommendations Unnecessary. Out. So I've picked out some of these recommendations that I felt were 
important. They recommend that on the Saab 340B, the autopilot should be switched on before any in-flight programming operations on the FMS. Before you go trying to program the computer while you're in the air, turn on the autopilot. Please and thank you. Let it fly. Yeah. The plane can fly itself. Please let it do its job. Yes. Why do you want to make this harder for yourself? It does a good job of it, too. It's like, that's the whole point. Yeah. They recommend that use of the autopilot should be recommended for all flight phases. In particular, use of the autopilot on departure under instrument meteorological conditions, or IMC, and during phases with a high workload or in airspace with dense traffic should be prescribed. Pretty self-explanatory. The same thing. Please use the tools we give you. Pretty self-explanatory. Just use the autopilot, especially in instrument meteorological conditions, especially on critical phases of flight. It's not that hard. No. But they make it hard. Okay, the next one's a chonk. Uh-uh. Oh. Is it an oh lord he coming? Kinda. Oh <laughs> lord. But it is important. They recommend that in the case of validation of licenses, which were not issued in accordance with JARFCL, and in particular of licenses from countries with unknown training procedures, the following criteria in particular are to be checked individually by the authority. Capabilities and knowledge according to JAR and FCL. Checking their knowledge. Checking their knowledge. Flying experience taking into account the type of aircraft flown, their instrumentation, operators, and the geographical cultural regions in which flying took place. Special attention is to be paid to candidates whose instrument flight training took place on aircraft with attitude instruments, which provide a display which differs from Western instruments. Also, linguistic skills of the candidate, adequate for the envisaged assignment areas. Especially a level of knowledge of English. Knowledge of the geographical and meteorological situation, especially high mountainous regions, and experience with imperial systems of measurement. Apparently that was an issue. Well, feet. (laughs) They do everything in feet. So, yes. Meanwhile, in Russian systems, they did not. They usually use meters. Yeah. Which, by the way, can be a big issue when they're flying together. Ugh. Because meters are nowhere near as accurate. So, yeah. There you go. All right. Moving on to another one. I mean, I felt that that one was really important. Yes. Because it highlights all the things they didn't check and they should check. They recommend that an operator should, in principle, be able to assume that a pilot with a validated license can operate an aircraft in accordance with local standards. Nonetheless, particularly in the case of the candidates, the individual background, CRM knowledge, culture, or language, experience with unusual instrumentation flying in the metric system, and so on, must be carefully clarified and taken into consideration on recruitment and employment. So they should have asked him these questions during his interview. Yeah. I feel like, though, don't they look at a pilot's training before they hire them? Yes, but usually hours and what type of license they have is kind of generic ways that they can say, okay, you're qualified, but they don't actually go into what types of airplane did you fly? Oh, that's what my next question. They don't look at the aircraft they flew? I feel like that's a little pertinent. You know, a lot of operators do these days because it is pertinent. And so it's how you gained that experience, you know, because you could be flying turboprops, sure, but what turboprops? Because were they Russian? That's different. That is a big difference. Or you've only flown turboprops and now you're going to fly jet engines. Right. They like need last to week. know. Yeah. They need to know that. <laughs> yes. Just saying. Yes. Agreed. I think I only have a couple more. 
They recommend that the operators must apply appropriate criteria and instruments for the selection of crew members, which ensure that the cultural background and linguistic skills of candidates are highlighted in such a way that working in a multicultural environment does not hinder optimal crew resource management. It was an issue here. Yeah. They couldn't communicate effectively. The, the first officer was saying left, but he wasn't saying go left, turn left. He wasn't saying you are turning left. None of those things. It wasn't clarified. Yeah. And this was the case because, allow me to clarify, the captain was from Moldova or Soviet Russia. Formerly Soviet Union. Yes. The first officer was from Slovakia and the lead cabin crew member was from France. Oh, wow. So none of them speak the same language. No. Awesome. <laughs> None of them are from Switzerland either. So good times. That's it really for the recommendations. But then they had the safety actions that were taken by the time this report was released. And there were a few. So this is all by Crosshair themselves. The things that Crosshair changed by the time this report was released. The appendix shows extracts from the operation manual in which the paragraphs which have been amended as a direct reaction to the safety recommendations are marked. Essentially, these related to the programming of the navigation management system, use of the autopilot, and division of tasks and monitoring in the cockpit. So those are all really ingrained in their Yeah, it's in the operations manual now. Right. As a further measure, the basic training of pilots from the FSU has been subjected to analysis the selection criteria, so they changed their selection criteria, basically, to better interview pilots and understand their knowledge when they come into the new airline. Also, the bank angle warning of the GPWS has been activated on all of the fleet. Thank God. <laughs> that is That's phenomenal. That's appreciated. So on this airplane, simple as that, they activated it. Good. And finally... The period after conversion training, during which the pilot is considered to be inexperienced, quote-unquote, has been increased from 25 to 100 flying hours. This limit is integrated into the crew planning system. So basically, the whole idea behind that is it allows them more time to transition and train and get familiar with the systems. It's not just 25 hours. It's 100 hours now. So the Air Disasters episode also mentioned a couple of others. The improved training for former Soviet bloc countries, they must now, I don't know if this has transferred over to Swiss, but they had to undergo an extra three months of training Mm -hmm. if they learned to fly in the Soviet Union. Well, yeah, because planes are different. They have to pass an English proficiency test. Yes, because everyone uses English. Yep, and aviation. And all Swiss crews must activate autopilot immediately after takeoff. You don't get a choice anymore. And this is good. I mean, these are part of the procedures. But Granite Crosshair's gone. So this is part of Swiss That's, International Airlines now. Yeah, so the last one specifically said all Swiss crews. Yes, and that's good. Along those lines, too, there aren't as many Soviet-trained pilots anymore because now it's a little bit longer after that. Yes. And on top of that, a lot of the fleets within Russia and former Soviet countries are Western airplanes at this point. They're Airbus, they're Boeing. So... Most of them are trained on those kinds of systems these days. That's the benefit. The way the cookie crumbles. That is the way the cookie crumbles. There are still pilots with lots of experience in old Soviet airplanes, though. And it's interesting. Good for them. They fly some interesting airplanes. I'll give them that. They're weird-looking airplanes. They're old. They're weird-looking. Talk about some (laughs) steam gauges. Even when they were producing, like, fully steam-gauged airplanes when we had fully glass cockpits at this point. Like oh that's weird yeah they they that's it's just the way they did things sure 
Okay. Well, thanks it's, for joining. It's, it's the thing of uh, if it isn't broke, don't fix it. That kind of thing. I guess uh, it was kind was of it broke. Bro- wasn't it? Was it not broken? <laughs> bro- pretty sure it was broken. <laughs> Thank you, everyone, for joining us that for another week of Crossair. Crossair Flight Four Ninety Eight. I'm so proud of you. Good job. I looked this up like three times. Oh because- well, cheater. Well, I had to do, like, a newsletter. I forget that we have a Mm -hmm. newsletter. (laughs) Yes, because you're not in charge of it. I am. (laughs) It's your baby. You. Considering that means sign up for the newsletter so I can send it to more people. (laughs) Yes. You can appreciate my... Newslettering. uh, Yeah. Craftiness. Maybe I'll throw in a joke somewhere random so you have to find the joke. (laughs) There you go. I feel like that would be pretty cool anyway maybe i'll do that for the next one cool all right everybody thank you so much for listening as always again our usual patreon plug if you don't know what's included there's a bunch of stuff included we have hundreds of thousands of hours of content on patreon thousands? at this point and yeah, probably thousands. hundreds of thousands maybe, maybe i can you let me be dramatic okay maybe hundreds Hun- <laughs> well probably close to thousands now we have maybe. a lot of stuff on patreon maybe if you include the ep- our normal episodes, because you get ad-free episodes, uh-huh. you get your normal episodes, you get the aviation listener episodes, you get my episodes, you get a Christy sode at some point, that all post episodes, <laughs> blooper reels, etc. So if you want to go check that out, pull us up on Patreon or there's a Patreon tab on the website. Also, check out the merch page. Like we said, if you go to Printify dot com they show you what you can use and put on a store if you find something like if you get bored a day at work it, or something it, it happens and you go and you look and you're like ooh i want that With but you don't have that let us know i can figure that out too at some point there are some things mm-hmm. we might veto and we have a right to veto <laughs> <laughs> yeah sure. so be aware but Wait. also like underwear no that's weird. Yeah, no thanks. No thanks. I don't want underwear that has our logo on it. That's no, weird. No, it is weird. Anyway, I think that's it for the end of the show announcements. We hope you have a safe and healthy week. We'll catch you all next week. Keep your speed up. Please like and follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Hard Landings Podcast and on Twitter at Hard Landings Pod. Subscribe and leave a five-star review on the platform you are using to listen. If you would like to see photos and sources for this episode, please visit us at heartlandingspodcast.com, where you can also leave us feedback and ask questions. This episode was researched and written by Nick and Christy. Our theme song was written by Miranda and performed by all three of us, plus Leo. And our logo is by Naomi from Not a Monster, Not a Boogeyman. Thanks for listening. Catch you next time.